Welcome to K-Explore's Emerging Research. We're focusing on research that's happening right now. It's science so fresh, you haven't even heard about it yet. I'm Stacey Cochran. And I'm Kim Winslow from the Knowledge Exchange. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jessica Pempeck, an assistant professor in the Department of Animal Sciences in the College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences. In the dairy industry, male calves are often less valued than their more productive female counterparts. Young female calves are integrated into the herd. Bull calves are often sold at livestock auctions shortly after birth. And while there are some very big feelings around how those calves are treated, Dr. Pempeck is working to make sure they start out healthy and pain-free. Jessica's work focuses on animal health and welfare. She started out looking for improvements to housing strategies for dairy cattle. Her work in that sphere led her to investigate new methods for disease control in organic dairy operations, since organic producers don't routinely use antibiotics. After working closely with producers, she saw a gap in information regarding calf care practices that had to be addressed. And it's that emerging research that we really want to learn more about today. Welcome, Jess. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you, Kim. It's great to be here today. So we usually start with a get-to-know-you question, but our topic today may bring out some strong reactions, so we think a little background would be helpful. We're hearing a lot about animal welfare lately, and I know that's your area of expertise. Can you tell us a little bit about what animal welfare looks like today? Sure. I think that question in itself could be an hour-long podcast, but (laughs) uh, animal welfare, just we'll start by defining what that means. So animal welfare refers to an individual animal, so not things that we give to the animal, but how that individual animal is doing. So it's physical state, it's mental state. So we focus a lot on health and behavior. And there's a lot of animal welfare scientists across the world today that are doing wonderful things in all of our different animal industries uh, to make sure that, you know, we're working side by side with producers to make sure that our food animals and, and other animal species are living their lives, um, you know, as healthy as, as possible. Jess, that's a great explanation on animal welfare. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the different aspects of animal welfare that researchers like yourself are looking into? So we usually call them the three circles of animal welfare. And the first component is really focused on the animal's physical health. So we measure things like, like health, um, how that animal is growing, producing, Um, So we're focused on the animal's biological functioning. You know, health just isn't physical. So we're also interested in the animal's mental health. It's a little bit more challenging to assess that scientifically because we can't just ask them, you know, hey, how are you doing? But there are different behavioral tests that we can do um, on the farms to kind of tap into that component of animal welfare. And then, you know, it's oftentimes, you know, we, we use science to the best of our ability, but sometimes, um, not sometimes, really all the time, we need to engage with others because there is a strong ethical component. You know, everybody feels very differently about this topic. And I think, you know, that's a beautiful thing, but we should engage with others and uh, talk about their values. So that's kind of where the, the third component comes in. And that's really focused on the animal's um, ability to live naturally. And that's where a lot of the public... Um, and consumers align with this third component. Um, so just making sure that we're engaged with all of our different stakeholders as we move forward and assess you know, animal welfare um, and how we are managing animals on the farm. Thank you so much for diving into those three different circles. I think that really sums up nicely the different areas that people can dive into. And I think that's a nice segue into 
uh, the project that you're looking at right now about improving bull calf care. Uh, I know that you're looking with dairy producers those days right after birth because they are so important. And I know this is a little bit of a touchy subject, uh, but how do you handle that touchy subject side of your research? I think with that, you know, just being open that, you know, we're first we're there to work to improve animal welfare. But in doing that, you know, we, we always work side by side with the producers. You know, we want to help them maybe make tweaks to their management practices and try to work with them. And every farm is different. So just acknowledging that and, and working one-on-one with them to make changes in their operations that might improve calf care. So I think just really being open and transparent in what we're doing and then that we're there, you know, we're all moving towards that same goal to improve the welfare of their animals. That's a really good point, Jess. The welfare of that animal is impacted by so many factors those first few days of life, like illness, dehydration, transportation, and the care that those calves receive those first few days really sets the stage for the rest of their life, no matter where they end up. So Jess, you've talked quite a bit about the animal welfare aspect that multiple researchers can take. Can we dive a little bit into the work that you're doing right now to help producers look at those first few days after a bull calf is born? Yeah, absolutely. And if it's okay with you, Stacey and Kim, I'd like to zoom out a little bit and rewind and maybe just give a bit of background as to what led us to our current project. Yes. Um, yeah, that'd be great. And just in, in general, um, there's not a lot of scientists, you know, that are really focused on the male calves. You know, we spend a lot of time researching female calf care and we have established a great body of, of literature, you know, and how to best promote the welfare and care of those animals. But male calves are surplus calves. They're not always male, but, um, you know, they go a different route than the heifers that remain on the farm. So a few years back, I was working with a great team um, here at OSU, veterinarians and, and scientists, uh, and we were working with an aveal production system. And we assessed a um, very basic study, but had assessed the, um, the health predominantly of those calves once they arrived to that veal facility. And from the study, we identified that the calves that are coming in often um, have failure passive transfer, which means that you know, they didn't get the colostrum that they needed on the dairy farm before they were sold. And um, another health issue like navel infections, um, one out of every four calves had a, a navel infection. So these uh, health outcomes that we were seeing, you know, once the calves got to the real facility, now we're kind of working backwards and like, okay, if we can, you know, work with dairy producers, you know, and and work with them on their newborn care practices like colostrum management or dipping navels and, you know, try to help them improve those practices, um, then hopefully this will lead to better long-term health outcomes from those calves. So that was kind of the research that set, set the stage for what we're doing currently. Sure. That makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for setting that stage. Um, I know in our conversation before the podcast, we talked a little bit about the USDA's um, National Animal Health Monitoring System. Uh, that they did a survey of national producers about their cow-calf operations. And you mentioned that this was one of the first times they had included questions about health and management of their cows and calves. Why is that important? Yeah, sure. So this um, this national survey uh, historically was really focused on the lactating dairy cows and the female heifer calves. And just in this um, you know last kind of round of the survey, they had a short questionnaire, which which was amazing. I'm really glad they included that, but it was focused on um, male calf care. And so there were a few questions um, in there and that too kind of identified that, 
those male calves will receive uh, lower total volumes of colostrum and then sometimes receive those feedings later than the than the heifer calves. So with that, you know, we started to see, okay, maybe there are discrepancies between, you know, the care of the male calves or the surplus calves that will be sold and those that remain on the farm. So that we were trying to you know, now moving forward, trying to, you know, make those practices um, more similar on the dairy. And in looking at some of your research, uh, it seemed like one of the fastest areas that producers end up getting their knowledge for how to treat calves is through, you know, what they've done in the past and what they hear from other producers, and also the benchmarks that are provided annually. So it seems like this is an area that simply there just isn't a lot of research. Is that correct? Is that a good read? Yeah, I think um, overall we we have identified, you know, best practices for newborn calves. Um, so we know, you know, what total volume of colostrum we should give, um, you know, that we should dip the navel and house them in a clean environment. So I think we we kind of have a good understanding, you know, of what is the best way to care for that animal after birth. But what we didn't know is, you know, why are there discrepancies between, you know, male and and female care after birth? So we've been, um, we went straight to dairy producers and we we interviewed um, 14 dairy producers, mostly in Ohio. and, And we had a couple in Indiana and just, you know, asking them questions, you know, how do you care for the for your calves, you know, after birth, and then, you know, are there any differences between male and females? And if there were, um, you know, what are the advantages to having different protocols for for males and females? And with that study, um, it hasn't been published yet. It's in, in review, but we really found that newborn care is, there's a lot of different factors that, you know, play into, you know, what resources are provided to the calves after birth. And the biggest barrier that that we have identified is is a lot of times it comes down to cost and you know those calves um you know they they leave soon after birth and so sometimes resources are, are prioritized to those that they remain on the dairy or to the lactating herd um and so while you know sometimes we have to make those hard decisions on the farm and especially with the um the economy right now um a, a lot of farms you know will also just say like Hey, it's it's too difficult to have two protocols. We treat everybody the same, um, but then other other times we do identify those discrepancies, and so we're kind of working with farmers now to say, okay, how can we try to help you overcome those barriers and, and give all cows, you know, the best quality care after birth that that we can. Sure, and I I think we do have to. I mean, you mentioned it, but um, it is a business. The dairy yeah. farmers, it is a business. Um, there are struggling. They have been for several years. There's not as many dairies as there used to be. Their industry really has been hit hard um, with some of the supply chain issues, uh, especially during COVID. Absolutely. So they have to make those tough decisions when they're uh, caring for their animals. So understandable. Well, and Jess, when we were talking earlier too, it seemed like uh, there was an investment in calf care when those producers knew where they were going next. Part of the difficulty is that we just don't know where those calves are going afterward because there are a number of places they could end up. Absolutely, Kim. I think I think sometimes there's um, you know a disconnect after that calf leaves the farm. You know the producer might might drop it off at an auction or a livestock dealer, and you know that's what they do week after week. That's their routine, but they never receive feedback on the, those particular animals that they sell. 
you know, once they leave the dairy, they, you know, might end up, you know, they might go straight to harvest, but they might go into dairy beef or to veal production. And there's really not a mechanism in place to one, let the producer know where they're going and two, kind of how, how they do, um, you know, throughout the growing cycle. So we're, we're trying, um, you know, to try to bridge that gap, but there's so many different stakeholders involved, you know, the dairy producer and then the, you know, whoever is buying the calves, the livestock dealer or folks at the auction, transporters. Um, and so there's just this calf goes, you know, a lot of enters a lot of new environments. And then, you know, once the, you know, that's never, you know, any information really is never provided back to the dairy producer. Right. So that's, I know we'll dive into the current research, but that's kind of what we're trying to do now. I love that. Well, and, and so let's talk about the current work that you are are taking on right now, because I know it involves so many of the groups that you were just talking about, producers, yeah. livestock auctions, you know, all the different kind of steps that this calf could enter. So can you give us a little summary of what it is you're working on now? With the study now, we're working with the livestock dealers. So these dealers basically just, you know, they'll buy calves from dairy producers and then sell them again to, to go on for dairy beef or veal production. And we're collecting um, data on, we have over a thousand calves now. Um, and we're looking at things like, um, like failure passive transfer. So we're taking a blood sample and we're analyzing total proteins to get an idea of the colostrum management practices on, on the farm of birth. And we're also um, doing a clinical health evaluation. So any kind of health abnormality um, that the calf might be experiencing, we're hoping to, to capture that as well. And then with that data and what I think makes this study very unique is that oftentimes we don't have a way you know, to, to give that information back to the dairy farmer. But now I'm working with great, great people um, and the livestock dealers. They were willing to say, you know, hey, I will help you, you know, get that information back to them. So with this, we're able to identify the dairy producers and their calves and create uh, reports to give back to them on the, the health of their animals. So um, we're going to these farms, you know, twice a week to keep capturing data on the calves. And then once we have enough information to create a report, um, we're giving them information on, on um, failure passive transfer. So how many calves, you know, from their farm are arriving to the facility that maybe did not receive um, adequate colostrum at birth. And we're also, because of our previous study, we kind of honed in on what health outcomes are, are really important that we, you know, might want to uh, improve. Um, so we're um, benchmarking um, navel, navel health as well, and also dehydration. So we're focused on those, those three health outcomes. And we're, um, what I think is really cool and about these reports is that we give the producer their information on their farm, but we also give them the averages from the other farms involved. So we have you know, 14 other farms so they can see, you know, hey, here's where I sit and here's where my average is. But, you know, here's other other farms. Um, and, you know, that that might you know help put their management in perspective to others around them because we're all in the same region. Um, there's farms of similar sizes. And then that might help, you know, um, kind of motivate them to change their practices on farms if if there are opportunities to improve. And that's all de-identified. They never know <laughs> who another farmer is because that's, right. that's very important. And then they can kind yeah. of see like, you know, maybe, you know, I, I thought I was doing well with colostrum management, but, you know, maybe there is room for me to make some tweaks there because, that's great. you know, farm, farm two, you know, they're doing really, really well. So just 
giving them data on their calves that otherwise they they wouldn't have. And so we just started that process where, you know, delivering the reports back to the producers and then we'll follow, you know, the calves and deliver more reports over the next six months or so. Um, but then, you know, we're working with them too. And of course, encouraging them to, to work with their veterinarian as well. But if there are tweaks, you know, that we can help them make on the farm, you know, we're working one-on-one with them to help, you know, if they do want to make any changes. Great. And then we can tell them if it worked. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, exactly. You want to know if you're going to be spending time, um, money, energy, um, uh, on these calves, you want to know that it, there is a benefit to that. Absolutely. To, you know, Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So Stacy, this completely reminds me uh, when we were having our conversation earlier, you brought up the electric bill comparison <laughs> right. where it's like you think you're doing so well right. and then you get that electric bill and see like, oh, maybe I'm not right. I'm energy at the bottom. like I thought. <laughs> That's, That's right. exactly. exactly how it looks. You know, benchmarking is not just, you know, solely for the livestock industry. We use this kind of technique um, to change our behavior, you know, whether it's electric usage, <laughs> but it's, it's that same kind of concept. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot awesome. of pressure to make sure that I'm turning lights off and yeah. I'm not using my computer for too long during the day, <laughs> oh, you know, mm-hmm. charging things. And on the flip side, I we like to, in our interviews, when we sit down and present the first report, we like to ask the producers, like, you know, what surprised you the most about this report? And sometimes too, they're like, wow, I, I didn't think I was doing this well in this area, you know? Oh, so nice. we see kind of both both sides, you know, sometimes there's improvement to be made, but other times they're like, wow, I, I am doing really well. And so it's, you know, confirmation for them. That's it. Yeah. Job well done. Yes, nice. absolutely. I love that. And I love that you're getting so much participation too with the the livestock markets, yes. um, with them participating and sharing um, some data and some feedback. So I understand uh, that, that this is not only an Ohio project, that there's another component in Canada. Yeah. Uh, with this project, you know, it's not just something that we are doing in Ohio or in the United States. Um, when we think about male calf care in general, folks across the world are are starting to you know hone in on this area and start to research it more heavily than we have in the past. So right now, currently, we have partners at the University of Guelph and the University of Prince Edward Island in Canada. Um, so we are, everything that we're doing here in Ohio, we are doing parallel um, in Canada as well. So it'll be really cool to you know make comparisons between the U.S. and Canada um, and, and help producers across a larger scale. So are their um, habits, are their practices pretty similar to what we do in Ohio then in those markets? Um, so they, they do have a similar structure for buying and selling calves. Um, but what's a little bit different in Canada is that they have codes of practice that that they have to follow and just the, the dairy structure. Um, and they have a quota in Canada. So, I mean, things are, are a little bit different. So I do think we will see some some differences. Um, and in our interviews, they... They got their work done pre-COVID, so they actually had focus groups. Oh. Um, it was really cool where they could engage with, you know, 10 producers and talk about this subject at the same time and kind of have that dynamic, you know, of producers talking together, whereas we had one-on-one interviews, so we didn't, you know, have that same dynamic. Right. Still got really good information, um, but we even found, you know, differences, um, you know, between what what motivates their their care, um, you know, just between the U.S. and Canada. So hopefully that that paper is published on the, the Canadian side. So I okay. encourage everybody to check that one out. But we're still working on writing up, um, you know, our interviews here in Ohio. So hopefully that'll be out soon. But yeah, we try to involve as, as many brilliant scientists as, as we can on this topic. 
That's great. Well, and not only does it sound like it's uh, both Canada and the United States and multiple groups uh, working together on this, but it also sounds like it's multidisciplinary. Is that correct? That is very fair. Yes. Animal welfare science in in general is multidisciplinary. Um, So a lot of the questions that we ask are ethical questions. And so we, you know, as animal welfare scientists, we can try to address those with the research, but oftentimes um, we collaborate with social scientists because when we zoom out a little bit and we want to engage with the public or engage with different stakeholders to figure out how they feel about this particular topic as well. Um, Because at the end of the day, we can't, you know, as much as we might like to in this discipline, we can't answer everything with science. You know, just some people feel very strongly about just, you know, um, harvesting young animals. So just getting people's um, input, basically, on, you know, should we use this practice on the farm? Should we not? And really, you know, looking at multiple perspectives to, you know, find a common path to move forward, I think is really, really important. So, um, and and it's not just social scientists. Um, I work a lot with epidemiologists, you know, we're trying to identify, you know, certain risk factors for, you know, potential poor calf welfare outcomes. You know, I, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I need to, you know, engage with somebody that can help me, you know, pinpoint what is putting calves at the greatest risk for, let's say, failure passive transfer or dehydration, and then you're kind of working to to move forward with that. But it's, yeah, oftentimes it's not just an animal welfare scientist. We engage with veterinarians and social scientists, and um, really it creates a, a dynamic team because we, we have to do that to answer these yes. kind of big real world questions. Absolutely. Well, and really, I love that you're talking about the the multiple perspectives taking a role in moving this research forward because I think, you know, we talk about systems-based research a lot, which is uh, from that ecological perspective, but because this is such a human-oriented and animal-oriented piece, you're really bringing in the veterinarian, you know, and an epidemiological side, but then also bringing in that social perspective, I think, is that system approach um, from from a completely different uh, kind of a flipped flipped idea. So I, yeah, I appreciate we love, that very much. We love collaboration uh, on this podcast. We love talking about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> All the people working together <laughs> to try to solve problems and just move research forward, move our animal care forward. Yeah. Wait, Stacey, does that mean? It, it does, Kim. Oh my gosh. I, can, are you ready? Oh. Do I need like a drum roll or something? I'm sorry. No, I'm just excited. <laughs> hey, Kim. Yeah? It's time for our dream big segment. Yeah. So here it is. Jess, if you had unlimited resources, funding, time, support, people, what big question would you like to research? Oh, boy. I will need all those things, funding, time, and people. Um, So I think if I was able to design an experiment uh, with unlimited resources, I think I would build an international team. Uh, with animal welfare and calf specialists, you know, across the world, because again, this isn't just something we are trying to move forward in the United States. It's it's on a global scale. Love so that. I would be very keen to collaborate with scientists like Dr. David Frazier. Um, he is often referred to as the the grandfather of animal welfare because he really 
has been involved in animal welfare science since its inception in the 1960s. And he created kind of the the three-circle framework that I referenced at the beginning that animal welfare scientists commonly use. So I would love to work with him. I would also want to collaborate with other animal welfare scientists. So Dr. Nina von Kaiserlink, um, she too, she she works with Dr. David Fraser. They're both at the University of British Columbia, but she is a social scientist and an animal welfare scientist and really focused on calf welfare as well. So she helped kind of shape, um, shape my, my career as an animal welfare scientist. Um, and also to kind of zoom out internationally, um, Dr. Bart Pardon, which again, you might not know his name, but he's done a lot um, in calf production systems in Belgium. So I think, again, just zooming out kind of beyond where we, we sit today. And of course, I'd keep working with my, my brilliant collaborators here at OSU and in Canada to, to help get this project done. So it it might seem logistically complicated, but I, I think that right. yep. I would really like to design a study where I could capture um, and collect data on individual surplus calves from the time they were born to the time that they were they were harvested. So this, again, involves working with a lot of different people. So working with producers to capture details on the farm in terms of colostrum management and other newborn practices for that particular calf. But I'd like to document details of transport, you know, duration of transport, environmental factors, um, and where those animals were sold. And then if they were sold to a livestock market, again, capturing kind of that environment um, in terms of, oh, let's see, important resources, like if the animals have access to food or water, um, bedding substrates, what kind of pathogens are in the environment, you know, that the calves could be exposed to. And then from there, again, that calf's probably going to be transported again. So capturing transport sure, details. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, I'd like to assess, you know, that that animal's welfare throughout the rest of its life. So if they do go to a veal or a dairy beef facility, um, I'd like to capture health um, behavior data uh, and microbial use data to really, you know, from there, you know, if we have data on a calf you know, from the time it's born all the way on through harvest, you know, with this data, we could then you know, create kind of the perfect scenario for that animal to help improve, you know, short-term welfare, but also long-term welfare as well. I know. It's fascinating. Yeah. It takes a lot of different stakeholders and so maybe um, that'll be possible one day, but. Well, and it sounds like, uh, you know, from the producers that I work, well, we all work closely with our extension professionals and industry, it seems like more and more we're hearing that animal welfare is is a hot topic and more yeah. and more producers are trying to learn more about it and trying to understand what more they can do. Is is that what you're hearing too, Jess? Yeah, absolutely. I still think sometimes, you know, people kind of kind of shy away from it and, and sometimes it can be scary, but you know, when I when I talk to a farmer, you know, I just you know, we don't even have to call it welfare. You know, it's just you are already, you know, working on we have a shared goal. Um, sure. You know, and I am not coming onto your farm to you know tell you what to do or things like that. You know, I'm trying to work with you. You know, help you identify areas you know where you'd like to improve. You know, let's make those management changes that are specific to your farm because every farm is different. And then, you know, let's do it. And then we'll see if those changes work. You know, you want to build that trust. You know, you want to have, you want to be a trusted advisor to producers. And, you know, um, and that takes time. Sure. But, to be able to continue that relationship yeah, and work with them. Absolutely. Sure. But that's, that's my only goal is, yeah, optimize welfare, but also, you know, help producers along the way that, you know, they're, they're sure. one and the same. 
And so what do you think is the timeline for being able to provide some of those suggestions? Yes. So it's, it takes, it takes a while, um, especially if we want to, you know, with this data, really with any, any research, you know, we don't just want to do it on one farm. You know, we want to engage multiple farms, multiple farm sizes that have different practices so we can truly capture, you know, okay, here's, here's where we are. Um, and with that, it, it does take a lot of time. It takes a lot of resources invested. Um, and so on the male calf side, you know, we're, we're not there yet, but that can hopefully inform, um, you know, some of those benchmarks on, on the male calf side, both in veal production and in, and in dairy beef. Because we, we have them for adult cows, or, but not so much for these calf populations. But yeah, it takes time. Kim, <laughs> I've... Uh, I feel like we need to have like a pillow or a sign that just says research <laughs> takes time <laughs> oh because, my gosh. you know, do you think that would right? be a hot seller? I don't really I know. I think it would. I yeah. I, I would mean, we'd buy it. We, would- we say that all the time. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my gosh. It takes time, Absolutely. but it's worth it, it because is. you're you're making sure you're investigating what Absolutely. you need to. Yes. So, so that's exciting. Because I think one of the most harmful things you could do is rush with a recommendation and have it not be correct or not be yeah. helpful. So. Yeah. And again, this could take a whole other podcast, but that's, um, you know, in animal welfare science, we're really trying to be proactive. You know, it's we kind of regulate animal welfare very differently. Like every state's kind of doing something different, but it's like, okay, if we're not going to house animals in this way, what's the next best scenario? And, you know, to be able to figure that out, it it does take a lot of time because there's large consequences if we rush, you know, to say, oh, let's do it this way. And that's not the best way for those animals. So, um, yeah, it's very important to to be diligent and take the time to do it right. Yeah, because then you're going to see switches in terms of what that housing might look like. And I'm sure that's a huge investment on behalf of the producers or, you know, the livestock auctions or, you know, whoever it may be. Yes, uh, 110%. I agree with that. Jess, I've really enjoyed talking to you about this. I have really enjoyed hearing about not only the start of why this research is taking place and, and hearing the context for basically the bull calf care situation, both here and in Canada, but then what it is that we're hoping to accomplish with the research, because I think that sets the stage for understanding where we are right now and where we could go in the future and what producers are hoping for themselves as well. So Jess, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Stacey and I. It's always a pleasure. Thank you both so much. It was great to be here. And thanks for listening to K-Explorer's Emerging Research. Want to explore more fresh research from the College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences? Visit kx.osu.edu.